Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 761 for the 17th of September, 2021. This week, Affinity applications from Serif continue to improve. They are good alternatives to Adobe applications for users that don't need the video, audio, animation, and numerous other applications that are included in Adobe's Creative Cloud. In short circuits, heat is death to computers, and high CPU temperatures have been causing my primary computer to halt without warning. Having determined that the problem was heat, not something else, I've been looking for a solution. Maybe you're thinking about buying a new camera. The mirrorless types are selling well, and even Canon and Nikon have mirrorless models. What makes them so popular? Let's take a look. In spare parts, only on the website, it is official. Windows 11 will start being deployed to eligible computers on the 5th of October, but the phased process won't be complete until the middle of next year. Readers can choose ebooks or printed books. Each choice has certain advantages, and a lot of people plan to stick with physical books. And 20 years ago, I was in Boston on the 11th of September 2001. Being unable to go anywhere, we continued with the Corel World Conference as I tried to figure out how to get home when the event ended. Affinity Photo, Affinity Designer, and Affinity Publisher from British software publisher Serif continue to get better. Significant performance improvements are delivered with version 1.10 of the tightly integrated applications. Photo, designer, and publisher are sold separately, but are fully integrated when they're installed. Moving from one application to another is easy. For example, when the user is working on a publication and needs to modify a digital image with photo or change a graphic with designer. Affinity's photographic design and publishing apps are ideal for those who can't or don't want to pay $50 a month for Adobe's Creative Cloud applications. Adobe includes video, audio, and a lot of other applications that aren't included with Affinity's suite. So if you need access to those other capabilities, the Adobe product is still a very good bargain. The current applications are based on more than 30 years of experience with applications such as Page Plus, Draw Plus, and Photo Plus. Those applications were discontinued in 2016 and are no longer sold or updated. The Affinity applications have been attractive in part because of their modest prices, $55 each for a perpetual license. One license is needed for each computer the software is installed on, and versions are available for both Windows and Mac OS computers. Users of earlier version 1 Affinity applications can upgrade to version 1.10 without cost, and a 10-day free trial is offered for those who want to just try the Affinity applications. The primary improvements in version 1.10 include better memory management in Affinity Publisher, an enhanced rendering engine in Affinity Designer, and more efficient use of layers in Affinity Photo. A considerable amount of work has been done on all of the applications to improve responsiveness. 
The photo application makes better use of the graphics processing unit, or GPU, processes raw files faster, includes better lens correction for some lenses, and supports some new camera raw formats. Publisher users will see better performance with long documents and documents with multiple layers. Designer handles placed images better, and, as with Publisher, is more nimble when working with multi-layered documents. It appears that each of the three applications share a great deal of core code, which means that the improvements made in one location affect all of the applications. It also means that developers can update the code base more efficiently and that users will see standard responses across all three applications. Memory management was a primary area of focus for Publisher, code was completely rewritten so that documents load faster and can be manipulated more easily. Serif says the updated apps represent the biggest performance ever for them, and updates will benefit all users regardless of whether they're working on Mac OS, Windows, or iPad OS. You can find additional details and release notes on the Affinity website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The primary use for each application is indicated by its name. Affinity Photo includes live, real-time retouch tools. Editing is non-destructive, so you always have the original image. The application handles most raw image formats and provides features that are surprising in a modestly priced application. Affinity Designer is the vector graphic design application. It's generally used to create illustrations, icons, some basic print projects, and web graphics. Affinity Publisher is what's used to create single pages or longer designed documents. That includes brochures, magazines, posters, and books. Completed projects can be printed directly or output for use by professional print shops. So the bottom line is five cats. Affinity Photo, Designer, and Publisher are very good values. The applications from Serif cannot compete with Adobe's Creative Cloud for those who need the additional website design, audio, video, and interface design tools that Adobe provides. But those whose needs are limited to design work, photo manipulation, and publication design might find that these applications are just the right choices. You'll find additional details on the Serif website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, last week, I described the process of finally locating the problem that had caused my primary computer to power off abruptly and without any warning. The final conclusion was that the CPU was exceeding the thermal junction maximum, or TJ Max, and instead of throttling back, the CPU was simply halting. That was most of the story, but as usual, there's more, and here it is. The computer had been running hot, 
By that, I mean I saw daily maximum readings of 94 to 97 degrees centigrade, and the computer's maximum thermal junction specification was 100 degrees centigrade. Normal operating temperatures hovered around 75 to 85 degrees centigrade, and that is simply too hot for sustained operation. When the computer was idle, the temperature rolled back a bit to the 65 to 75 degrees centigrade range. A well-designed computer should stay under 70 degrees most of the time. Temperatures in the 70 to 80 degree range are cause for concern for anybody who's not intentionally overclocking the CPU. Overclocking refers to the process of running the CPU faster than its operational design speed. Anybody who does this should understand that faster operation also means faster failure. If you see temperatures in this range and the computer hasn't been overclocked, check air vents to make sure they're not blocked with cat or dog fuzz and make sure that all of the computer's fans are operating properly. If the computer is operating in the 80 to 90 degrees centigrade range, you are heading for premature system failure. Notebook computers that are used to play resource-intensive games can run in the low 80s when the game is active, but exceeding 85 degrees centigrade is a strong danger sign. Any computer that exceeds 90 degrees regularly has a serious problem that needs to be fixed soon. Last week, I described running the notebook computer with the case open, which also gives me a third screen and better top ventilation, and also placing the computer on a bracket that raises it about five inches above the desk. Both of these changes work to improve air circulation. The open hardware monitor showed improved readings after I made those changes. The hottest of the four cores hit a maximum of 95 degrees centigrade. That's still too hot but it's a little better than 97 degrees. The average temperatures of the four cores ranged from 62 to 64 degrees centigrade, but those maximums still bothered me. So I tried making some other changes, and the hottest core, still core number one incidentally, has now consistently been running around 77 degrees centigrade, well within the comfort range, and the average temperature range, 55 to 59 degrees centigrade, that is a huge change for the better. That average is based on a full day of normal use, much, much better, and the computer stopped shutting down instantly. So perhaps you're wondering what magic changes I made. I have to confess that I found no documentation that suggests what I did would solve an overheating problem, and these results apply to one single computer. That said, I believe the results probably will be repeatable, but I have no proof of that. Power management tools are buried in the old-style control panel, not the newer settings area. That's where I went to make the changes. To get there, you press the Windows key and type Control. One of the options will be Control Panel. Choose that and then type Power in the search box. Then choose Edit a Power Plan and then click Change Advanced Power Settings in the next dialog box you see. This will open yet another dialog box. Scroll down to Processor Power Management and click the plus sign to display the three associated options. Click each of the plus signs to expand Minimum Processor State, System Cooling Policy, and Maximum Processor State. And here's where things become, I think, a little less than intuitive. 
Each of the three items has two sub-options if the computer has a battery, one for plugged in and another for on battery. With the exception of the minimum power setting, the values will probably be the same. So let's look at the three options here. Maximum processor state. Both plugged in and on battery settings will probably be 100%. This would seem to be the most important setting. I changed both battery and plugged in values to 95%. That helped, but the temperature readings were still higher than I wanted them to be. I didn't want to dial the overall performance back any further, though. At 95%, I didn't really notice any significant difference. Then, minimum processor state. This is the one that seems counterintuitive. The value will be low for battery operation. For my computer, it was set at 5%. The plugged-in value was 100%. So, I wondered, what happens when the CPU approaches its thermal maximum? Does setting minimum processor state at 100% keep the CPU from throttling back? I left the battery value at 5%, but I changed the plugged-in value to 75%, down from 100%. My expectation was that this difference would be large enough that if there were going to be any changes, I'd see them. And the third setting, system cooling policy, I can think of no reason why the cooling policy should ever be set to passive, so I retained the active setting for both plugged in and on battery. When set to passive, the computer will attempt to reduce high temperatures by slowing various components. When set to active, the computer will activate internal fans or cause the fans to run faster as the temperature increases. If you'd like more information on active versus passive cooling, check out Microsoft's documentation. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The computer is running well now, with virtually unnoticeable changes in performance. After running the computer with these settings for a few weeks, I may experiment with returning the maximum processor state to 100% and edging the minimum processor state up a bit from 75%. The objective will be to keep the maximum temperatures at or below about 85 degrees centigrade and the average temperature no greater than 60 degrees centigrade. But there is another possibility. CPUs in desktop computers usually have fans to pull heat away. Notebook computers rarely have these because of space considerations. Instead, they have metal components that are used to transfer heat away. In either case, the CPU has thermal paste between the CPU and whatever device is being used to pull the heat away. The thermal paste can dry out over time and become less effective. Users can replace it. Amazon sells Arctic Silver thermal paste for about $7. Replacing the paste is easy enough if you have easy access to the CPU. The process involves removing whatever is above the CPU to pull heat away from it, cleaning the top of the CPU and the bottom of the connected device with isopropyl alcohol, applying the new paste, reseating the fan or other device, and then putting the computer back together. Desktop systems usually offer easy access to the CPU. Notebook computers will be more complex. Getting to the CPU on my primary computer would involve removing the back cover, removing the keyboard, and disassembling more of the computer than I was willing to do. The steps I took by providing better ventilation and modifying the power settings have been sufficient for me to consider the problem solved for now. 
Depending on the long-term results, this may be continued. Or not. Single-lens reflex, or SLR, cameras began to catch on with serious photographers in about the 1960s. That's because they were small and light, and because the photographer was able to compose an image by seeing exactly what the film would capture. Cameras have become smaller in the past 50 years, and today's digital SLRs are seen as too big, too bulky, too heavy. But serious photographers still want something that is more adjustable than the camera in their phone. Micro four-thirds cameras and a variety of other mirrorless cameras are filling that gap. They're called mirrorless because, well, they don't have mirrors. SLR cameras are big and bulky because there's a mirror behind the lens. The mirror flips up when the camera takes a picture, but directs light from the lens to the viewing plate on top of the camera at other times. A five-sided pentaprism flips the image vertically and horizontally for the photographer's convenience. New mirrorless cameras are much smaller and lighter than SLRs because they omit the mirror and the pentaprism. One example is the Sony SVE-10, which is priced at about $800. It has an APS-C sensor, that's the same size found in many SLRs, and it weighs less than a pound. Compare that to the Canon 80D, for example, which is considerably larger, has an APS-C-sized sensor, weighs about 2 pounds, and sells for around $1,200. Now, this is not a review of the Sony SV-E10, nor is it a recommendation. I own a Canon 80D, and I like it. I like it a lot. So it's certainly not a condemnation of the Canon camera or SLRs in general. I'm just using the Sony camera as an example of what people like in this kind of camera. The camera is small, light, able to take interchangeable lenses, and supports up to 4K video capture. It has a view screen on the back, but no electronic viewfinder. Some mirrorless cameras offer an add-on viewfinder for several hundred dollars more, so be sure to choose a model that has either a built-in viewfinder or one you can add on if that's important to you. View screens can be difficult to use in bright sunlight. An interval shooting mode is included for time-lapse videos. Intervals can be selected between 1 and 60 seconds and record up to 9,999 sequential frames. The included 16 to 50 millimeter lens is the equivalent of a 24 to 75 millimeter zoom lens on a full-frame 35 millimeter camera. Although this camera would certainly be suitable for still photos, it appears that Sony has designed it primarily for those who create video blogs. There's a huge array of mirrorless cameras, such as the ones you'll find on B&H Photo's website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Prices range from a few hundred dollars to thousands. And by the way, TechBiter does not receive any funding in any way from B&H Photo. It's just a good store. You'll get a good deal on spare parts this week, just $0 on the TechBiter Worldwide website. These are the articles you'll find. It's official. Windows 11 will start being deployed to eligible computers on the 5th of October. The phased process won't be complete, though, until the middle of next year. Readers can choose ebooks or printed books. Each choice has certain advantages, and a lot of people plan to stick with physical books. 
And 20 years ago, on September 11, 2001, I was in Boston. Being unable to go anywhere, we continued with the Corel World Conference, and I tried to figure out how to get home when the event ended. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.